Good morning, everyone. In 1966, before the formation of ASEAN and when the US was chest deep in Vietnam, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew gave a speech titled Big and Small Fishes in Asian Waters. It's a fascinating, sweeping account of the problems of that era, some of which still ring true today. I will share just one quote from Mr. Lee, and I quote, From time immemorial, the small fish is caught between the medium and the big fish. And the small fish says, I'll be friends with both medium and big fish. Singaporeans grow up with these constant reminders of how we need to be friends with everybody, that we are a small, vulnerable country. So the theme of this session will be familiar to most of you today. Very briefly, I'd like to unpack the notion of smallness. Not all small nations are in the same situation. Most of the developed countries in the world are small, like Denmark, and they are obviously in a different boat from small, poor states like Fiji. Small states with strong regional groupings, like the EU and NATO, are more secure than states with more threatening neighbours. Singapore is one of the smallest, but also wealthiest countries in the world. It's part of ASEAN, which is of course nowhere near as integrated as the EU. So Singapore's situation is not so straightforward. I am eager to hear how our speakers see our unique context. Most importantly, how does a small state like Singapore navigate what is now the world's most important bilateral relationship, US-China ties? Our esteemed speakers on stage today have collectively accumulated more than eight decades of experience in diplomacy, not quite the age that Mr. Lee would be in September, but they have a lot of wisdom to dispense. We'll start with Mr. Rudd, followed by Professor Chan, and then end with Mr. Bilahari. Mr. Rudd, as you all know, was the 26th Prime Minister of Australia and is currently the Australian Ambassador to the United States. Mr. Rudd will be speaking as a longtime friend of Singapore. Mr. Rudd, please. Well, good morning. It's uh, great to be back. Great to be back in Singapore. I arrived last night. Good to see that the island republic is flourishing. I've been here so many times over the years that I feel it is also now a part of my home. I thank the conference organizers for their kind invitation to speak at this important commemoration celebration of Lee Kuan Yew's life. It was my privilege to meet uh, LKY on many occasions while I was still serving as prime minister of my own country. I found him always to be a source of enlightened counsel, occasional reprimand in a very Harry Lee sort of way of doing it, uh, always privately, but also a source of good counsel to barbarian leaders from around the world, myself being the principal regional barbarian. <laughs> I admired him for his singular political determination in building this modern republic after Singapore's turbulent separation from Malaysia more than half a century ago. LKY was a man who knew instinctively that his vocation was politics, and he pursued his mission for his country, his region, and the world with passion, with absolute determination, and with the powers of sharp persuasion. We should reflect on that, the powers of sharp persuasion. His vision was for a prosperous people, a secure region, and a stable world, notwithstanding the geopolitical turbulence surrounding him. He sought to do so through a deeply realist lens, trained on the complex shoals uh, he had to navigate, 
matched by a deeply pragmatic view of politics and public policy, yet still tempered by his own intellectual formation during Attlee's post-war government in the United Kingdom in the decade before Singapore's independence. And against all these measures, LKY's achievements were indeed remarkable. We miss his wisdom today as we seek to navigate a new set of geopolitical shoals. With the rise and rise and continued rise of Xi Jinping's China, America's response to it, and the impact of this profound geopolitical competition, including the growing risk of crisis, conflict, and war, uh, on uh, what we do in this region today. As part of these uh, celebrations, I've been asked today how we, in fact, address the fate of small states, the future of small states, given the turbulent geopolitical circumstances we find now. I'm happy, of course, to respond to this request. And I do so in my personal capacity as a former Prime Minister of Australia, a friend of this country and someone who cares deeply about the region. I don't therefore speak in an official capacity on behalf of the Australian government, let alone as its ambassador to the United States. <laughs> my interest is to contribute to our wider conversation on how we now go about best preserving the peace, prosperity and sustainability of our region, one which will determine so much of the fate of humankind beyond this region during the course of the 21st century. Henry Kissinger, like LKY, another remarkable elder statesman and still with us, said to me some years ago when I was setting up a new think tank in New York that the critical question to always ask ourselves, Kevin, he said, is what is really happening in the world, as opposed to what the current accepted discourse may want us to believe is really happening in the millions of words that are pumped out every day and what passes for our debate quaintly entitled Current Affairs Today. Kissinger also said to me we should ask ourselves a second question. What are we not seeing and what are we missing? These are profoundly challenging questions. We should also be asking ourselves what are driving these changes and challenges. They are hard questions, much harder than at first they appear. They're the sort of questions LKY would ask of himself and of others when they visited him, even when his answers might sometimes seem impolite uh, in their brutal candor, midst the superficial politeness of much of international society. I argue there are five major global change drivers at work at present, and our futures lie in understanding their force, and in navigating their dynamics. First, as OKY himself predicted decades ago, China's aggregate national power across the military, the economy, and technology has now begun to match that of the United States, notwithstanding Xi Jinping's best efforts since 2017 to ideologically undermine the historical successes of China's growth model over the previous 35 years. Change driver number one. Number two, Xi Jinping, unlike his predecessors, Deng, Jiang, and Hu, has now resolved to deploy that aggregate national power to fundamentally change both the regional and the global status quo. On territorial boundaries over Taiwan, the South and East China Seas, the Sino-Indian border, unless, of course, he can be deterred from doing so. 
He's also resolved to become the preeminent power replacing the US in the East Asian Hemisphere, just as he's resolved to rewrite the norms, the rules, and the institutions of the wider global order in a manner much more compatible with China's own national interests and values. The third <coughs> change driver is that the US, since 2017, has decided not to passively accept this changing of the regional and global geopolitical guard and has now resolved both nationally and with its allies internationally to fight back through all levels of US and allied statecraft to prevent this from happening. Fourth, for the rest of the world, this creates an increasingly binary set of policy choices, compounded by the stark significance of the war of aggression in Ukraine on the future nature of the global order. Despite the fact that most third countries would prefer not to have to make binary choices between Washington and Beijing on the future of the order, given the competing equities they have with each of these major powers, Washington and Beijing, as centers of the regional and global power order. And finally, this geopolitical contest for regional and global dominance is intensifying at a time when new, grave global challenges are sweeping across the world with a sharpening intensity, led by an emerging global climate crisis, the ever-present risk of global pandemics, and the revolutionary impact of artificial intelligence on all past assumptions concerning human agency, economic competitiveness, and national security writ large. I would argue that these are the five core reasons that cause most policymakers in both democratic and non-democratic countries today to feel somewhat overwhelmed. They are big. They are mega changes. They are mega challenges. <clears throat> Often leaders can feel overwhelmed by the unprecedented complexity of these challenges and the fact that they are unfolding simultaneously and the fact that the national and international institutions for dealing with them are also themselves under unprecedented duress. Interestingly, Xi Jinping's Chinese Communist Party often asks similar questions of itself and themselves. Xi's often repeated question of his comrades is, quote, what is the main trend of our times? or within the complex epistemological and methodological framework of Chinese Marxism-Leninism, he asks, what are the principal contradictions the party is facing today, both in China and the world? Xi's answers to these questions are important for us to understand, although we will disagree <coughs> in part or in whole with his answers. For example, in China, he concludes that the principal challenge or contradiction facing the Chinese Communist Party is the urgency of attacking the imbalances that have arisen from China's long period of untrammeled economic growth by reasserting the power of the party over the relative freedom of the Chinese private sector and the individual citizen. As for the world at large, Xi Jinping's conclusion is that he sees the principal contradiction or opportunity as lying in what he calls the rise of the East and the decline of the West. 
driven by what he sees as the internal political and social weaknesses of the world's democracies compared with the strength and virtue of China's new authoritarianism, one that he argues represents an effective alternative model for the emerging world. Whatever the formal analyses of the strategic environment we may face right now might be, most analysts, however, would agree that we now find ourselves objectively in a new era of strategic competition, where the stakes are high indeed and the tripwires for actual armed conflict are disturbingly real, and where our capacity to effectively deal with transnational problems is increasingly constrained by the overwhelming weight of geopolitics. So what then is to be done? Faced with these challenges, what then are the options for the rest of us, whether we are larger or smaller states, whether we are allies or strategic partners of the United States or not, if our combined objective is to preserve the peace, stability and prosperity of our region and our world? Our core analysis should be that China is no longer a status quo power. This is clear from China's official record. Xi Jinping says that he wants to change the region and the world, and we should take him at his world. By contrast, by and large, the US has remained, at least until recently, a status quo power. Indeed, China is now the dynamic in our overall strategic calculus, while the US, by and large, has remained, until recently, relatively static. US military outlays have only recently begun to increase. Its alliance structure has been much the same for nearly three quarters of a century. And until recently, its economic model for itself and the world, based on free markets at home and abroad, has remained relatively unchanged, although it too is now evolving through an unprecedented embrace of a new form of national trade and industrial policy, driven in turn by the US response to the size and seriousness of the perceived China challenge. For the future of our region and the stability of the global order more generally, I argue that as a matter of strategic logic, the best way to preserve the status quo is through the maintenance of strategic equilibrium. This is not just through maintaining a military balance, although this is critical within any realist frame of analysis. It is also about remaining competitive economically and technologically. It is also about sustaining a foreign policy consensus anchored in the UN Charter, the Bretton Woods institutions, and the wider fabric of international customary and statutory law. That, for example, is why the violation of Article 2 of the UN Charter by the 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine is such a line in the sand for all of us. It's also why the UNCLOS Tribunal's 2016 determination on the South China Sea is so important. Furthermore, on the specific question of strategic equilibrium and the military balance, that is why deterring any party from the use of unilateral military force to fundamentally change the status quo over Taiwan, the South China Sea, the East China Sea, or the Sino-Indian border is so important. That is why, for example, the Quad is useful in supporting overall strategic equilibrium and balance. That is why enhanced trilateral military collaboration between the US, Japan, and Korea is useful in supporting this same equilibrium and balance. That is why the continued strengthening of the US-Philippines Defense Treaty is also important. And that is why AUKUS is similarly useful in supporting the same. That is why we should also ask ourselves the reverse question 
as an equal matter of elemental strategic logic, namely what would happen to strategic equilibrium, balance and regional stability if the United States was suddenly to withdraw militarily from its alliances and the region as a whole, as China has so long formally advocated. Were that to occur, we would face the very antithesis of strategic equilibrium. Indeed, it would accelerate strategic change of the most fundamental nature. Finally, we need to examine the impact of the maintenance of strategic equilibrium, including deterring China from acting unilaterally over its outstanding territorial disputes, the impact of maintaining this strategic equilibrium on a territorial integrity, political sovereignty, and freedom of choice for smaller powers. The truth is that the maintenance of strategic equilibrium is the most effective means of maximizing the individual political agency of smaller states. Larger states, including those who see themselves as great powers, may believe that through their own national power, they can guarantee their own national autonomy. That luxury rarely extends to smaller powers. Some middle and smaller powers may rely on direct security assurances from a great power, as in the case with Australia, the Philippines, and the United States. Others have relied on forming regional associations, such as ASEAN, with its tradition of preventative diplomacy, not only to reduce the risk of intra-regional tension, such as once prevailed across Southeast Asia, but also to enhance their negotiating leverage with external powers by joining with their neighbours. For example, Australia is proud to have been ASEAN's first dialogue partner for, frankly, almost half a century. Australia is also strongly supportive of ASEAN's outlook on the Indo-Pacific, including ASEAN centrality and the outlook's four pillars for external engagement. All regional states, however, also rely on the maintenance of a much broader strategic equilibrium across their wider security environment to provide them with maximum political sovereignty, freedom of policy maneuver, and the right to choose their national futures. I would argue, therefore, that in the face of the rapidly expanding reality of Chinese military power, technological capacity, and foreign policy and infrastructure development footprints, the ability of individual ASEAN states to chart their own course is enhanced by the continued strategic presence of the US military, its alliances, and other pan-regional arrangements. So too would I argue the same for the 15 island states of the Pacific Island Forum. Institutions such as ANZUS, AUKUS, and the Quad enhance regional autonomy by providing a level of st surrounding strategic ballast that enhances overall strategic equilibrium, which in turn enhances the freedom of regional states to choose. Regional states in both Southeast Asia and the Pacific that are not allies of the US and are not required to explicitly join these wider efforts to enhance this overall strategic balance, nonetheless retain their right to choose. In this sense, they are not forced to choose between Washington and Beijing, something the region has consistently said they do not want to do. Indeed, the reverse applies. Because others are doing the bulk of the balancing work, regional states remain free not to choose. Some might argue that enhanced deterrence and greater efforts to maintain the military balance increases the risk of great power confrontation in the region. But if the region, if the response to that risk is to call on the US to withdraw from the region altogether, <coughs> the consequences for the relative autonomy of individual states will be much, much greater 
were our region then to become dominated by Beijing alone. Indeed, because the US will remain in the region, as will China, that is why it is in the interest of all states in the region to urge both China and the US to engage in a substantive mill-mill dialogue in order to develop mutually agreed guardrails to reduce the risk of crisis, conflict and war by accident. The US has said repeatedly that it's willing to do so. We should all urge China to respond to this invitation. It is in the interest of the region that both do so. To conclude, I have deliberately not sought to provide any advice to my Singaporean colleagues during this address. I've been around far too long to do that. This is a country of wise and considered statecraft after the pattern laid down by LKY so long ago. Almost all states, large and small, have a deep interest in the maintenance of the status quo because all peoples want to maximize peace, prosperity, sustainability, and stability. However, we cannot simply wish these things into existence. At its logical core, it requires the maintenance strategic of strategic equilibrium as the fundamental enabling factor. Ukraine provides a telling example of what happens when equilibrium and deterrence fail. If equilibrium and deterrence were to fail in our region and we ended up in a general war, the consequences for the world at large would be catastrophic. History tells us that when it comes to the great powers, the idea of a limited war is generally fanciful. All of us, larger and smaller states, should therefore stand opposed to the unilateral use of military force by any party that would undermine the regional status quo. All of us should stand on the side of strategic equilibrium, geopolitical balance, and where necessary, deterrence, and on the side of political autonomy, particularly for small states that these things can provide. And all of us, large states and small, should stand on the side of dialogue, of negotiation, the peaceful resolution of disputes, including building guardrails between opposing militaries in theatres and domains of concern in order to reduce the risk of crisis, conflict and war by accident, just as the US and the Soviet Union did half a century ago under the Helsinki Accords. And all of us should stand behind the principles and processes of international law. And, to conclude, we should stand behind the unity, resilience, and centrality of regional institutions such as ASEAN, the Pacific Island Forum, and the European Union, rather than allowing member states to be picked off one by one by those who are opposed to such regional institutions of resilience or who seek to weaken them. I look forward to working with our friends here in Singapore as we wrestle with these great challenges that we face as we seek our common future together. I thank you. Um, thank you, Ambassador Rudd. Uh, you promised us at our pre-panel meeting you'll try to be provocative without being preachy to Singaporeans. And I think you've not disappointed, so thank you. Uh, next, we have Ambassador Chan Ing Chi, a professor at the Singapore's uh, Lee Kuan Yew Centre for Innovative Cities. Professor Chan is also ambassador at large and former ambassador to the US who served in the position for more than 15 years among her very long list of accomplishments. Professor Chan, please. Thank you, Suraida. I should begin by saying happy birthday to Mr. Lee Kuan Yew. It has been eight years since he passed away. He would have been deeply concerned by what is happening in the external environment, and he would not be amused 
by what is happening internally. But I believe this is not the moment when he would jump out of his grave, as he promised, if he saw Singapore going in a terribly wrong direction. Now, Singapore has done very well, and for the past 60 years after independence, we weathered the ups and downs, financial crises, recessions, and structural reforms. But the intense geopolitical rivalry between the United States and China, complicated by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, has converted our region, East Asia, unprecedentedly into a dangerous hotspot. Now, there's no doubt that our internal good governance and cohesion contributed hugely to our success. As Janada said this morning, we became independent at a time of American unwavering leadership in a bipolar world during the Cold War. Fortuitously, after our independence, the underlying conditions or trends were for the integration of economies and globalization. These trends favored small states, and Singapore made a living and prospered through globalization. And China's decision to adopt the market economy and engage with the world really created tremendous opportunities for many countries and enabled our region to grow. Sixty years later, tectonic shifts are underway, and the world order that we are operating in is rapidly changing. We are familiar with the contours of the shifts. The principles of free trade, free flow of investments and globalization have been widely discredited and resisted in the United States, home of capitalism and free market economy. The U.S. morphed from a hegemon to a reluctant hegemon to a superpower in withdrawal, but has returned as a superpower in full force, actively seeking to counter rising China's challenge to its predominance. The structured stability of the old bipolar order has given way to a fragmented multipolarity. And since the Ukraine war, we have seen the United States and the European allies and the US treaty allies in Asia aligned on one side and Russia and China on the other. Now, some would simplistically think this is a return to the Cold War. It is not. And that this time around, there's a large swath of countries remaining in the middle, the third space, not choosing a side, but practicing multi-alignment. And they will join the United States in some groupings or coalitions, depending on the issue, but also join China in their groupings and initiatives. For these countries, alignments are not exclusive. The United States is perplexed and adjusting to the emergence of this middle group, who choose to exercise their sovereignty, identity, and agency, and pursue multi-alignments. They have seen this in India, Saudi Arabia, and the Gulf states. China will work with this multipolarity because this works in their favor. With multipolarity, China can more easily rise to be the peer pole of the United States and make its influence felt. Now, the Biden administration has doubled down and successfully strengthened America's alliances in Europe and Asia. It, in, it inspired and created 
a number of minilaterals, as well as deepened bilateral defence cooperation with the Philippines. In addition to setting up the Quad, the Indo-Pacific Strategy, AUKUS, NATO has included the Asia-Pacific Four, Australia, New Zealand, Japan and Korea, in its meetings two years in a row. The NATO 2022 strategic concept asserted the Indo -Pacific, that Indo-Pacific developments in the region impact on Euro-Atlantic security. And Joseph Borrell, the EU High Representative on Foreign Policy, in a speech on a debate on China in the European Parliament in April this year said, and I quote, Taiwan is clearly part of our geostrategic perimeter to guarantee peace. You can imagine eyes rolling in our part of the world. And the US, Japan, Australia and the Philippines agreed to expand defence cooperation in the South China Sea after a quadrilateral meeting this year on the margins of the Shangri-La Dialogue. Kevin, Kevin Rudd has just highlighted the importance of building strategic equilibrium or deterrence in the environment of geostrategic contests to help small and medium states find space to deal with the growing, overwhelming military capability of a large neighbour. Introducing strategic deterrence or equilibrium is important, but it should be calibrated. If strategic deterrence is absolute or near absolute, it could be seen as provocative, triggering countervailing alignments. It raises the temperature of the regional theatre, and it remains to be seen whether such robust deterrence contributes to the peace and security of the region. Now, before we go further into the discussion, it is crucial for me to point out that countries in Southeast Asia do not see China in the same way the US does. All of us have problems with China, but we do not see China as an enemy or an adversary. And all ASEAN countries would agree that China has a right to grow. On some days, some of us would say China is a bully because their ships harass ASEAN fishermen in the South China Sea near the coastline of their countries. And there's also the Mekong Delta issue where China, in fact, um, secures the water sources uh, so that low, lower repairing states find it less, uh, uh, less generous. Which is why the US FNOPS has been welcomed in the region in recent years. ASEAN states may rebalance their relationship between the United States and China as new leaders take over. But even if they pivot to the United States, they would still want to maintain a good relationship with China. And I would say it's vice versa as well. In this competition for strategic influence and power between the United States and China, we are only in the second round of a 13-round boxing match. There's no reason to stop at 13. It used to be 15 rounds for the fight of the century. In this case, it could be endless rounds. 
Both sides see it as a zero-sum game, till they don't. The fact is, the United States cannot contain China's growth, and China cannot push America out of the Western Pacific. So what can Singapore do to preserve our sovereign interests, our independence of action, and continue to prosper in these, contest uh, in these conflictual times? The global situation now favours small and medium-sized states on both sides. The US and its allies and China are trying to court and win as many friends and partners as possible. ASEAN has received renewed attention and interest from the United States, so has the Pacific Islands, and I dare say Africa will attract attention. But pressures will increase from both. The Washington Post recently wrote a long investigative report on Nianhe Jiaobao, alleging the Chinese language media was pushing China's propaganda and falsehoods. Washington Post highlighted reports of China's attempts to spread its messages and influence through working among Chinese clan, Singapore Chinese clan associations and business associations. Singapore is well aware of these activities, and the government is constantly vigilant against agents of influence of all countries. We've had a history of uncovering black ops targeting our population seeking to manipulate sentiments. I always thought with media in Singapore, because of the language diversity of Singapore, the English language Straits Times would draw from English language sources, and the Chinese language Jiaobao would draw more from Chinese language sources. Now, this article, appearing in Washington Post, will most certainly be read by the administration, members of Congress, and their staff. There will be questions asked, and there will be pressure on Singapore. In fact, some strategic, American strategic thinkers are concerned that Southeast Asia does not appear to be very concerned about the spread of Chinese propaganda and influence, and are arguing for the United States to counter Chinese propaganda and activities in the region. So we should be prepared for a stepped-up battle of narratives much more than currently evident. So what should we do? The best strategy for Singapore, a small state in these divisive and conflictual times, is to do what we have done in the past. We must realize that there are not many options out there for Singapore, but we must do whatever we did better and refresh our approach and narrative. Firstly, as a small state, we must remain active and let our voice be heard, otherwise, we will lose our relevance. Singapore must continue to speak up in global forums, bringing a reasoned voice to what sort of world order we want. We must develop a good narrative. You know, we used to say, we do not want to choose, we do not want to choose. Now, we are stressing rightly, we are behaving in a way that serves our national interests and protects our sovereignty. Sometimes it may mean we have to say no. Secondly, though we do not want to choose, in reality, we make choices along the way with both sides. 
We take up initiatives on the table from the United States and from China. That is fine. It does not mean we stop developing a strong relationship with the United States or with China. We should do both for as long as we can. Now, it is well recognized that Singapore has a strategic and comprehensive relationship with the United States. The United States is our biggest investor, creates our best jobs, and our defense partner. We have expanded cooperation to sustainability, cybersecurity, and now space. China is our largest trading partner, and China's BRI investments go through Singapore. Many of our major corporations, as well as SMEs, do business in China. Three, we must be able to speak up and be relevant. And to do that, we have to build up a strong, successful economy and society. No one during the Cold War would have listened to us if we were a basket case. No one will listen now to a basket case. So building a strong economy and society is important. Fourth and finally, a small state needs to work with groupings, and Singapore has done that very well. In fact, we helped to invent some of the groupings. Singapore needs to strengthen ASEAN, our regional organization. It is fashionable to trash ASEAN and point to ASEAN disunity as proof that it will not amount to much or do much. But regional um, groupings find it hard to reach consensus. And the larger the grouping, the tougher the going. The European, NATO, European Union and NATO are not all of one view on how to deal with Russia. And there is no consensus on whether or when to admit Ukraine into NATO. And there are different points of view there on the use of cluster bombs. It is interesting that in the 2023 survey on Southeast Asia by ISIS, Yusuf Ishak Institute, ASEAN was considered by ASEAN countries to be the second most influential economic power in Southeast Asia after China and ahead of the United States, Japan or Europe. ASEAN also voted for ASEAN as the leading champion of the global trade agenda. In 2022, they voted for the United States and China as number one and number two champions of global trade. ASEAN believes in itself. If ASEAN continues to build itself into a more cohesive grouping, it has better odds to withstand pressures from outside powers. But ASEAN's contribution to regional and global peace and security lies in the ability of some ASEAN member states to create initiatives that are inclusive. It welcomes the participation of the United States, China and Russia. These are, for example, our ASEAN Regional Forum and East Asia Summit. This is enormously important in divisive times. The ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific uh, is inclusive. And Indonesia conducted the Komodo multilateral naval exercises as responses to humanitarian crisis that included the United States, 
China and Russia as recently as in June this year, though the powers were on poor speaking terms. And APEC is one of the few regional organizations that includes both the United States and China. ASEAN believes that China should be included, not marginalized, from the regional order. A China excluded from regional groupings would be an unpredictable China. ASEAN is the right convener for the times. Singapore must be active as a player working with other AMS interested in preserving the peace, stability and prosperity of the region. Thank you. Um, thank you, Professor Chan, for that very insightful speech. I anticipate there will be questions about that Washington Post article, but let's see. Finally, Mr. Bilahari Kausikan. He calls himself a retiree, but if so, he's a poster child for active aging. He is one of Singapore's most distinguished diplomats and is also chairman of the Middle East Institute. Mr. Bilahari, please. I don't just call myself a retiree, I am a retiree. <laughs> Uh, I want to thank the organizers for inviting me, perhaps incautiously, to talk to this very important conference. Uh, that we live in turbulent times is not in doubt. But are our times unique? Competition is inherent in any system of sovereign states, and unfortunately, competition too often turns to conflict. Changes in the concept and technologies of warfare made the 20th century particularly bloody. The war in Ukraine and competition between the US and China conformed to long-established patterns of state behavior. The uncertainties they evoke are what the former US Secretary of Defense, the late Donald Rumsfeld, called known unknowns. Our region and key countries globally were rife with conflict and instability during the first decade of our independence. In 1965, while Konfrontasi against Malaysia and Singapore was ongoing, Indonesia plunged into a paroxysm of internal bloodletting with a distinct racial as well as ideological tinge after a failed coup blamed on the Indonesian Communist Party that had moved closer to China. In 1969, racial riots broke out in Malaysia. All five original ASEAN members faced China-supported communist insurgencies, and the Cold War was hot in our region. In 1965, the US escalated the Vietnam War by introducing ground troops and bombing Hanoi and Haiphong. Half a decade later, however, the US was forced to withdraw, and all Indochina fell to communist rule. India and Pakistan went to war in 1965 and 1971. And shortly before, in 1962, China attacked and defeated India in the Himalayas. In 1967 and 1973, Israel fought and won two wars against practically the entire Arab world. In 1969, the Sino-Soviet dispute turned violent with border clashes in Siberia and Xinjiang. And China was engulfed by the revolutionary madness of the Cultural Revolution and the U.S. was rocked by deep and sometimes violent political, social and cultural divisions over the Vietnam War and civil rights. And similar tensions of a lesser degree, though, royal Japan and Europe. 
And over all this, and over numerous conflicts in the Third World, U.S.-Soviet rivalry, which only two years earlier in 1963, had brought the world to the brink of nuclear disaster during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, these were the unproprietor circumstances in which Singapore had independence thrust upon us. Nor was our internal situation favourable. Separation and confrontation had cut us off from our traditional hinterlands. Unemployment was about 9%, and while our economy was in this precarious position, in 1968, the British announced it would withdraw, putting perhaps a fifth of our economy and thousands of jobs at risk. Yet, we not only survived, but prospered. And as we face yet another iteration of recurrent cycles of great power competition, there are three key factors from our history that we should keep in mind. And these three key factors are first, a sense of perspective, second, a belief in our agency, and thirdly, the primacy of politics. I'll deal with each in turn. First, perspective. It's crucial that we face uncertainties and turbulence with the psychological poise that comes from putting events in perspective, neither downplaying nor exaggerating their significance. Seeing them in context, we generally pay too much attention to events, not enough to processes. Seeing them in contexts and understanding and responding to events on their own terms, rather than projecting our hopes and fears onto them. I've already stressed that competition and conflict are inherent, in, are inherent characteristics of international relations. And here I have to disagree with my friend Janadas a little bit when he said that the, that the last 58 years were relatively benign ones for Singapore. Uh, it was only a historically short and exceptional period of about 20 years, from 1989, when the, glo uh, when the Berlin Wall came down and for, uh, to perhaps 2008, when the global financial crisis uh, broke out, that, 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 that harsh reality of great power competition and conflict was masked by the overwhelming dominance of US power. And even then, there were vicious genocidal conflicts in the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, and the US invaded Iraq and Afghanistan. It's dangerous to confuse the exceptional with the norm. Those states that did so and were sanguine enough to cash in on the so-called peace dividend of that short and exceptional period have now cause to regret their decision. That the conditions of that exceptional period were favourable to Singapore's interests does not make them any less exceptional or make them replicable. We, are now, we have now returned to a more historically normal period of international relations and we'll have to deal with the world as we find it. Doing so requires us to promote a regional balance of, of major powers and maintain a strong capability for deterrence within that balance. There's no realistic alternative. And here I agree with Dr. Mr. Kevin Rudd. Balance is a necessary condition for the realization of almost every other value in international relations. The effective functioning of international law international organizational, regional, regional organizations like ASEAN, regional integration, economic development, and many more, all require a stable balance of power. And the war in Ukraine has underscored what Singapore has, never, has always understood and has never been shy about articulating, 
and that is the irreplaceable role of the U.S. in maintaining regional balances. Until relatively recently, other countries in Southeast Asia, and in particular our immediate neighbours, considered this a somewhat eccentric Singaporean attitude. In 1990, after a combination of Filipino domestic politics and national di natural disaster forced the U.S. military out of Subic Bay and Clark Airfield, we signed a MOU with the U.S. to allow its forces to use some of our facilities. Our neighbours reacted hysterically and tried to pressure us to abandon our decision. But in 2019, when the MOU was renewed, and in 20, zero, 20, 20, uh, 2005, when we concluded a strategic framework agreement with the U.S. that significantly enhanced our defence cooperation, there was not even a whimper of protest. For a variety of mainly domestic political reasons, other Southeast Asian countries are constrained in what they are able to do with the U.S. in defence, or at least in talking about what they do. I don't want to push the point too far, but in this respect, what Singapore does in keeping the U.S. anchored in Southeast Asia is now considered something of a regional public good. Other Southeast Asian countries, or at least their militaries, are now doing what they can to, to enhance defence ties with the US and with Japan and Australia, the principal US regional allies. Vietnam has significantly improved defence relations with the US. And very significantly, this year, the Indonesian military sent troops to participate in the US-Australia talisman Sabre exercise in which Germany, the UK and Canada, key NATO members, as well as Japan and South Korea, also participated. And earlier in the year, the Indonesian military held the largest ever Super Garuda Shield exercise with the US and other countries, including Singapore, Malaysia, Japan, South Korea and Australia. And of course, the current Filipino administration has granted US forces access to important additional facilities in the Philippines. This shift is important because while the U.S. role is irreplaceable, regardless of what happens during next year's American presidential elections, we are going to be dealing with a more transactional U.S. that will demand more of allies, partners and friends, perhaps crudely as during the Trump administration or perhaps more politely and cons consultatively in another Biden administration, but in either case as a matter of certainty. Post-Cold War America is not going to bear any burden or pay any price to uphold international order single-handedly. And it's pointless to expect the US to act in a way that it is no longer prepared to act, but absolutely crucial that Singapore and Southeast Asia collectively through ASEAN or nationally must decide how and how far we prepare to work with post-Cold War America to maintain balance in the region. Of course, we should do the same with China and all other countries. And the same holds true in the economic domain. It's utterly pointless to my mind to grumble about an America that no longer regards in multilateral trade liberalisation positively. The domestic politics of trade in the US has changed and nagging the administration of the day is not going to make a difference. It's much more useful to see how bilateral economic ties with the US can be enhanced. Because the US is still and will maintain and will remain a vitally important bilateral economic partner for most countries, including Singapore, as Heng Chi has pointed out. Uh, now, agency. As Jana Das mentioned, Singapore should not exist. Seven years after separation, in a book entitled Singapore in Southeast Asia, 
published in 1972, a British academic predicted, and I quote, the future of the city-state of Singapore will be largely determined by events in the surrounding countryside of the Malay world, and the Republic can do little more than wait. And this academic concluded, and I quote again, the lines of domestic conflict have already been drawn. Singapore's tragedy is not merely that insurrection will occur in the near future, but if and when it does occur, it will threaten the very survival of Singapore in Southeast Asia. Now, needless to say, none of this happened. Given the but given the external and internal circumstances of our, of our independence, that academic's assessment was not entirely unreasonable. Where he went spectacularly wrong was in his judgment that our fate would be determined by external circumstances and that we, and I quote again, can do little more than wait. That is to say that we were without agency. All you see around you on this small island is the strongest possible proof that a small state in the most dire of circumstances is never entirely without agency. Never entirely without agency, provided, of course, we have the wit to recognize opportunities and the courage and skill to seize them. To seal this dictum, far more often quoted than understood, the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must, is what I consider crude realism. And crude realism is often not very realistic. In fact, it is not so much realism as fatalism, a very different thing, and fatalism is fatal to small countries. It's particularly important when dealing with the current iteration of great power competition not to succumb to fatalism, which is the antithesis of agency. Both the US and China say they do not want to make third countries choose, but do, in fact, want third countries to choose. Their psychological dimension of their competition whether presented in terms of the universality of the Western variant of democracy and the Western interpretation of human rights, or in terms of the inevitability of China's rise and the imperative of all Chinese, uh, Chinese defined ethnically or culturally, not in terms of nationality, supporting President Xi Jinping's version of the China dream, is the purpose of these narratives is to instill fatalism by forcing false choices upon us. Now, I doubt that Western ideas or universality appeal to more than a very small segment of Singaporeans. But three-quarters of Singapore's population is of Chinese ethnicity, and that poses a very different type of challenge. Most Singaporeans of all ethnicities are, I think, committed to the multiracialism that has been the foundation of Singapore since 1965. Uh, but the values of, of an only 58-year-old country are still mailable. Um, and it's all too easy to confuse cultural sympathies with natural interests. As the Senior Minister of State for Foreign Affairs, Ms. Sim Ann warned in an important speech in Parliament in April this year. Now, politics. In, the first in our first decade, 33 countries around the world gained independence, of which 19 had been under some form of British rule. Excluding oil-rich Gulf states and a couple of Caribbean countries, none of them can today be accurately described as successes except Singapore. The key factor was political leadership. 
Many of the former British possessions had highly educated and politically skilled leaders that successfully led their peoples to independence, often under very trying circumstances. But they mostly failed the harsher tests of governance. Not that Singapore's road to independence was strewn with roses. Modern Singapore emerged in the 1950s and 60s from the complex post-Second World War environment that saw decolonization and mesh with Cold War rivalries in complicated processes in which the battle for merger and eventual separation were entangled in political fights against the, communist, the Chinese Communist Party supported United Front and Malay and Chinese chauvinists. Singapore's first-generation leaders were a rare combination of natural politicians and technocrats, not just able to win political fights, but, govern, but to govern effectively. Their political victories were sometimes very close-run, but the extent of their political successes led their, the second- and third-generation successors to privilege technocratic competence over politics through to the turn of this century. As in the 1950s and 1960s, the domestic political dimension of the strategic environment that we now face is again crucial. Strategic rivalry between the US and China confronts Singapore with fundamental, indeed existential, domestic political challenges of national identity, values, and social cohesion. To meet these challenges in an increasingly complex domestic political environment, our fourth-generation leaders must become more like our first generation melding political skills with technocratic competence. And all I have said about seeing events in perspective and exercising agency are not foreign policy issues to be dealt with by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. They are fundamentally domestic political issues, too crucial to Singapore's future to be left to diplomats. In the 1950s and 60s, our leaders convincingly defined the essential issues and what was at stake for ordinary Singaporeans and won their support. This is again the crucial political task. I've already referred to Senior Minister of State Sim Ann's April speech. I also commend to your attention Prime, the Prime Minister's 2022 National Day Rally speech in Mandarin. But this is not a challenge that lends itself to a definitive solution. It is what I call a lawn mower issue. You just have to keep mowing the lawn because the grass will keep growing. This is not a fight that will be won by a few teachers by senior leaders. Such speeches set the framework, but the fight has to be continually fought at the grassroots level because that is where the problem lies, including among some grassroots leaders. But there is no reason why we should fail. In fact, we are better prepared to prevail than any other country because the PAP is the only non-communist party that joined a Chinese Communist Party-supported United Front and won. There is no other example that I know of anywhere else in the world, and we prevail then with far less capabilities at our disposal than Singapore today commands. So there is no reason why we should fail. In fact, I think we will succeed. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you very much, Mr. Bilahari. I have two quick questions before I open the session to the floor. Uh, the first relates to the propaganda war that Ambassador Chan talks about and the lawn mowing that you see as a necessity. Uh, since Lee Kuan Yew's day, Singapore has been very vocal about the failings of the West, including its political systems and its culture. 
The Singapore government, on the other hand, has been very reticent, maybe with the exception of one unnamed retiree, on calling out the failings of China. Uh, perhaps because it knows China has a very thin skin compared to the US. But isn't there a risk that this double standard in rhetoric and signaling could play into the hands of the PRC influence operations in Singapore? You, you're asking me? Anyone of you. <laughs> well, I will say for, I'll answer first and then let uh, Kevin is itching to answer too. <laughs> well, I think it does. I think it does play into hands of a certain section of our population. Uh, I remember once Mr. Lee Kuan Yew telling an American ambassador just after, just before we expelled, just after we expelled an American diplomat for, in, for interfering in our domestic politics, that the Singapore ground is not naturally pro-Western. It doesn't mean it is anti-Western, that's a different attitude entirely, but it's not pro-Western and that's a political reality. But yes, you know, I think, you know, China is not 10 feet tall. It has its great strengths, it has its great weaknesses. And in the last 10 years, those weaknesses have become a little bit more evident for all to see. Uh, I just joked with Mr. Kevin Rudd, we used, to, we used to disagree with all the time, almost. But these days, I find myself agreeing with him most of the time. And that's yet another triumph for Mr. Xi Jinping's diplomacy. <laughs> or that Bilahari may have changed. <laughs> Oh, Kevin has changed. <laughs> I never change. Neither do I. <laughs> so, Heng Chi is required to reconcile these irreconcilable positions. Absolutely. Oh, you're not answering. Okay. Um, uh, I think it's true. I agree that with you, Zoraida, that we are less inclined to call out China. Mainly because we believe the United States sees itself as a liberal, open society, and therefore they should welcome debate, criticism, and counter-criticism. China doesn't say that. Uh, China is also just round the corner. I think that's the reality, you know. So there is a difference in behavior, but I think we should sort of point out where China is not acting in a way or behaving in a way that wins the hearts and minds of Southeast Asia. We should just say it as it is, you know. Uh, but if it is China, because of China's culture, you can say the same thing, but you can say it differently. Brashness, you know, in your face is American style. If you don't put it that way, they don't get the message. Whereas I think uh, in Asia, we get the message very fast. So you don't have to speak in the same tone, but we should speak up. As the token Westerner on this panel, <laughs> let me answer on behalf of 2,000 years of accumulated Western civilization and see how I go. Um, I think the first thing is um, uh, we overestimate the extent to which uh, you can simply publicly attack the United States yes. no. uh, without any impact on your interests. I think that's an important principle. I, I agree. Yes. Um, because um, in my extensive diplomatic experience, which is now four months old, uh, uh, I've discovered that um, uh, uh, not hurting the feelings of 320 million Americans uh, is almost as important as not hurting the feelings of 1.4 billion Chinese. That is, you've just got to be careful, first point. Um, and there's therefore the continued agency and importance of effective diplomacy. We three know that intimately. 
My second point is, given that Xi Jinping's China has changed its public course and is now openly engaging in its political rhetoric, both in the emerging world but also in the Western world, its claim to be the new global leader, uh, we are now at a stage where, frankly, China has changed the rules of engagement and the rest of us are therefore, I think, equally entitled to publicly engage China's challenge. It is doing so openly. It challenges, for example, the whole notion of strategic equilibrium and US alliances. It challenges, for example, decisions of the international system when they go against China's interests. I referred before the unclosed determination uh, on um, uh, the unclosed determination on the um, uh, uh, nine-dash nine lines. When these things happen, and China says on the public record it utterly rejects the determination of the UNCLOS tribunal. The rest of us need to engage because China is publicly engaged. I think, therefore, it's important to be consistent, to be systematic, and when China has engaged robustly in international debate in pursuit of its own interests in a way which uh, we do not agree, then we should equally respond. Um, at the same time, we should be robust and consistent in our private diplomacy in Beijing as well. Okay, thank you. Um, my second question has to do with the point that you just raised about China. Um, I think all three of you have expressed uh, in, in different, to different degrees concerns about China's rise. And China, of course, feels extremely misunderstood. But I wonder what is your interpretation of the Chinese position at its most reasonable I ask this because I think it is important to acknowledge that China does have some legitimate grievances, some legitimate ambitions, and isn't there a danger that if we start thinking strictly in terms of strategic equilibrium slash deterrence, that could easily morph into um, hard containment of China's even more benign aspirations? Well, my own view as a student of Chinese culture and civilization uh, is that there is much fundamentally to admire about China's ancient and modern civilizational achievements. I mean, the fact that they have taken hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and created this enormous growth driver for the region and the world is an empirical fact. We shouldn't walk away from that. We should celebrate that with our Chinese friends. That's the first point. Uh, on the second point, however, why we are engaged in this debate about equilibrium, balance, and deterrence is because beyond those civilizational achievements uh, by the modern Chinese Communist Party state, China now actively seeks to change by unilateral action the external strategic environment. It seeks to do so in relation to Taiwan, South China Sea, East China Sea, Sino-Indian border, and depending on the nature of the debate, uh, cyber and space. So for those reasons, this is of a different character. It is of a different nature. And therefore, because it seeks to move the status quo from there to there uh, in, in a manner which affects directly the security interests of others, there will be a response through equilibrium, through balance, and where necessary, through deterrence. Uh, 
So I think it's important, and this is often missing from the American debate, to recognize China's extraordinary positive achievements for its own people, understand the enormous contribution it's therefore delivered to global economic growth, and at the same time recognizing that this decision, really since about 2013, to take this accumulated power and now to deploy it, to fundamentally change the security status quo, that is what we are responding to. Quite different from responding to China's own national rise, which as a student of Chinese language and culture, I admire. Uh, yeah. um, my sense is, and you sit in Hong Kong, Zuraiga, there will be a great deal of discussion about what is what are the legitimate interests and legitimate rights of any nation. Uh, and I sense that uh, I feel China has a right to grow. They are feeling that the United States feels that China's growth must be stopped. So that at one level, yes, China has legitimate rights. But some of its behavior goes beyond you know, legitimate claims. Now, for instance, I used to say in the United States to some of my American friends, they objected so much to Made in China 2025 when it first came out, and that China said, I want to be number one in AI in the world. I said, if Japan said, I want to be number one in AI, you say, go ahead, see if you can do it. If Germany said that, they would also say, go ahead, let's see, and so on. But in the case of China, there was a concern. Why? Because China said they want to be 70% self-sufficient by, I think it was 2030, you know, and that uh, they would be, um, what was it now? Besides 70%, they would be dominant in the critical technologies by, I think it was end of uh, 2050 or so. That really scared the life out of all the, uh, out of the United States and of uh, Europe. So there was a ganging up together. So I think China has to be careful in its ambitions. They have a right to grow, but when you want to be self-sufficient, and really they came to, they already talked of self-reliance then, then I think it triggers reactions in the world. Also, I think the West sees China playing by Western rules, but wanting an outcome that, does, that favors China particularly and they are not opening their markets to the same rules. So I think that's uh, one of the issues. There are legitimate rights, but sometimes China, many times China crosses that. And in South China Sea, I think many of us don't understand why there are 200, 400 naval vessels crawling all over the waters and stopping fishermen from fishing. Where they have traditionally fished. Azuraida, I think first of all, it's wrong for you to contrast the balance of power and legitimate rights. <laughs> they are not alternatives. What a country considers its rights will depend on whether or not it sees that there is a balance of power. If there's no balance of power, its concept of its rights will certainly expand, particularly a big country like China. I think that is a very crucial point that needs to be understood. Secondly, China's rise is a geopolitical fact, and by and large, a very, and a very important geopolitical fact. It's not something that we need to approve of or disapprove of. It just is a fact, and we have to work with it, as I think uh, both Heng Chi and Kevin have said in their own ways. Um, 
it is a remarkable story, but the, but the concern is not about the fact of, America, of China's rise. The concern is about certain behaviours that China has chosen to indulge in. <laughs> right? And that again brings me back to my first point. Those behaviours occur because, perhaps because they perceive an imbalance of power, a lack of a balance of power, and therefore they push the boundaries. My last point is that, you know, within a balance of power, there are certain things that I think China correctly can, can uh, aspire to. Uh, I don't see any reason... What would this be? Wait, wait, let me, oh. let me yeah, just <laughs> calm down. Uh, uh, for example, you know, there is no reason why international rules should be determined solely by the West as they have for the last 400 years. Yes. Right? On the other hand, to say that I want a say in setting the rules is different from saying I want to set the rules unilaterally because there are rules about how to change rules. <laughs> and everybody should abide by those rules about how to change rules. Uh, I'll give you a very small example. There is absolutely no reason why the head of the IMF should always be a European. There's absolutely no reason why the head of the World Bank should always be an American. There's absolutely no reason why the head of the ADB should also be a Japanese. If the Chinese, a Chinese national qualifies, why not? But as I said, there are rules about changing rules. And the problem is not about China's rise per se, but about Chinese behaviours, certain Chinese behaviours. That's the issue. Okay. Um, thanks, Zuraida. I'm always speaking for balance. I describe myself as leaning against, you know. If everybody argues one side, I lean against. <laughs> you know. uh, but let me say this. Um, on rules to change rules, you know, China behaves in a certain way. And Kevin, I would want to ask you this. You say China is seeking to unilaterally change the international rules. Do you see China, in fact, changing its behavior because the West, there's been a consolidation of the West and is pushing China. So what you see of China in 2023, 2022 is partly also created, hastened by Western behavior. So as a result, they have behaved in a certain way. Now, Bilahari, on changing the rules, I think China and the BRIC countries have been waiting for the West to change rules in IMF, World Bank, and so on, what you say. Nothing has happened. Exactly. So they're fed up. So they're unilaterally <laughs> trying to change rules too. That's why you have BRICS, AIIB, etc. Uh, Kevin. <laughs> okay. The, um, I think where I partly disagree with you, Heng Chi, is because I come from the Australian school of diplomacy called the Zhongyong school, the golden mean. Uh, <laughs> we're into balance within balance. Um, yeah. and, and our predisposition when we look at the region is to actually understand the, the legitimate aspirations of all states, great and small. And, what, and Australians have by and large been very comfortable with China's rise through until the underlying change mm. in Chinese strategic doctrine, which, as you know, happened in 2013-14 in the party's Central Work Conference on Foreign Affairs in uh, November of that year. Out with the Deng Xiaoping doctrine, which they had embraced for, in Deng's terms, decades and decades, 
which was hide your strength, bide your time, never take the lead. Uh, and the new one, which was strive for achievement and change the status quo. This was a doctrinal shift. Uh, so when I say unilateral change, mm -hmm. that's as it was interpreted internally as well. The second point I'd make is this. What I see in these outstanding territorial disputes are all four big ones. Sino-Indian border, um, South China Sea, Taiwan, East China Sea, is China's comprehensive lack of interest in any form of negotiation or mediation about them. Fundamentally, it's about the assertion of power. Take, for example, the grey zone activities currently in the South China Sea. You referred to hundreds of Chinese boats. Customs boats, fisheries vessels, uh, with uh, Chinese PLA Navy vessels lurking just behind. These, therefore, do not reflect the norms that we've agreed to since 45 about the peaceful resolution of territorial disputes. So when I say, have they been uh, forced, when you ask, have they been forced to do this? Um, no, other than they've encountered resistance by not just the United States, but by a whole bunch of regional states mm -hmm. about uh, the undesirability of any large power in the region being able to unilaterally set the new rules. It's parallel to Bilahari's point. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I have a lot of issues to pick with some of the answers, but I shall resist the temptation and seat the ground to the floor. Uh, please keep your questions brief because we have to have a hard stop at 12.40. Can I have the first question okay. from... Uh, okay, that gentleman on the left. Please keep your question to just one yes. and be very brief. Thank you. I have a question for Chan Heng Chi and Kasi Khan. Uh, Who are you? Can you identify yourself? <laughs> oh, sorry. You're not I, as famous as you think. <laughs> <laughs> I am Homer from Taning Kiam Foundation. Okay. So now I have a question for Kasi Khan and Chan Heng Chi. Okay. Um, this is regarding the growing tensions between the U.S. and China. China has become more assertive as its economy has grown. It claims Taiwan and the South China Sea. I think of more concern to Singapore is the South China Sea. It claims all, all the waters within the famous nine-dash line. Now, if that is not challenged, it would be very serious for Singapore and all of ASEAN, you see. So, can I have your question? What's please? your question? Okay, my question is, should war break out between the US and China over Taiwan or the South China Sea? Which side will Singapore choose? We try to remain neutral, I know. Okay. We want to do business with everybody and make money. Okay, thank you very much, Homer. I think okay. in the interest of time, let's give our panelists a chance to answer. Okay. Anyone? Thank you. Chief first. You go first. Um, you asked if war should break out, which side should uh, Singapore be on? I think the reality is that we will see how it breaks out. You know, it's not like you just take a position. So, especially over the Taiwan Strait, you know, in South China Sea, first, there are different scenarios that can happen. You have an accidental uh, conflict. How long does it last? And will both sides pull back? 
that can happen too. So to answer your question in a hypothetical uh, situation, I think it is very hard, but it depends on how the scenario, you know, erupts. Okay, thank you. Look, I'll be very brief. We have always taken, we have one side, that is our own side. Yeah. Whatever we do, we act in our national interest. As Heng Chi said, we will have to determine what our national interests are in terms of particular scenarios, whether it is in the South China Sea or in the Taiwan Straits or in Antarctica or wherever. And that's the only honest answer anybody can give you right now. When we say we don't want to take sides, we in fact have already taken sides. It's our own side. We, choose, we act in our own interest, as all countries do. Kevin, you want to jump in? No. No. Okay. Okay, next question, please. Thank you. Um, Gay Min, uh, former president of Nature Society. Um, all the speakers have emphasized the importance of geopolitical equilibrium and balance, although your interpretations seem to be rather different. I would like to ask, um, we know that uh, there have been many disagreements between China, the US, I'm not an international expert, but one thing, one area which everyone seems to be in agreement on is the importance of cooperating in climate change. I'd like to ask the panel, is there an opportunity for better cooperation on environmental sustainability, especially in the South China Sea, and for Singapore to play um, um, a major role, perhaps, in uh, promoting this cooperation. Heng Chi has mentioned the importance of inclusiveness and relevance for Singapore. Okay. Thank you very much, Gamin. Heng Chi, do you want to take that, or Kevin? Kevin should take that first. Quick one. Uh, just very briefly, um, yes, we have all mentioned uh, strategic equilibrium because uh, all three of us have been diplomatic practitioners over many decades. We understand the reality of when equilibrium exists and when it doesn't uh -huh. exist. And when it exists, states have greater autonomy, smaller states have greater autonomy, and when it doesn't exist, you have less autonomy. That's why we're big equilibrium fans up on the stage, and perhaps our definitions are not all that much different. Secondly, my own understanding of how we could ideally unfold the US-China strategic relationship would be one along the following lines, that you could have a level of equilibrium about what I describe as the five red line issues um, that we've run through before, including Taiwan, uh, whereby there is a, uh, a balance of power, but also a shared set of understandings about how to manage crises when they erupt. At present, there is no such understanding. Second, beyond those five domains, you should be able to have an arrangement between the US, China, and their allies, friends, and supporters that there is then open competition in all other domains, economic, technological, trade, investment, ideological, ideational. And third, you should be able to have within this framework of what I call managed strategic competition, a third domain which maximizes US, China, and global collaboration on outstanding global public goods. That includes the, the emerging climate emergency, 
climate crisis. We've seen these events in the last several months, which I think people around the world find frightening and legitimately so. Secondly, uh, the next pandemic, we haven't seen the last one. Um, and of course, in other uh, critical areas of collaboration as well, including the ongoing uh, task of maintaining global financial stability, which people think seems to simply happen by magic. It doesn't. It's because central, agent, central financial and monetary authorities are working almost um, separate from geopolitics to maintain the stability of the international fin financial system. Having this three-part approach to managing our overall collaboration, I think, is the best way forward for all of us, states large and small, while being mindful of the overriding interests of the great powers. Great. Um, as stimulating as this discussion has been, I'm afraid I have to bring it to a close. What? But the good news is, as Professor Chan says, we're only at the second round of a 13-round match, so there'll be many more opportunities going forward. And as Bilahari said, as long as we exercise agency, maintain different perspectives, and remember the primacy of politics, we should be able to do well and triumph. On that note, please join me in thanking our brilliant speakers for their contributions today.